You may be seated. I think one of the great mysteries of the Christian life to modern Christians is prayer. And I say that prayer is mysterious because I've experienced that in my own life. It's been a journey for me. We're not good at being still. We're not good at being quiet. We're not good at speaking up sometimes too. And I think all of these these added pressures and these change the way our, our society is devolving and the way that relationship is being de-emphasized the way that discipline is being de-emphasized self-discipline is being de-emphasized have contributed to this mystery that has become prayer for us now what's mysterious about it to me is that first of all I know it's a privilege that there is should absolutely be impossible for any sinful person, for any sinful man, any human being to approach the throne of a holy God. I understand that. And so I understand that it's a, it's a divine privilege, it's a remarkable privilege that I'm completely unworthy of. But I think where, what begins the mystery for me is that even though that I understand the, the privilege that prayer is, as I find so often in my own heart, I find so often in my own life that it still feels like a duty for me, not a delight. That it feels almost like a job rather than a privilege. And then I've just got really practical questions. I've got really practical questions like, how long should I pray? Like, there's times in scripture where I people, see people praying a long time, and then there's, there's Jesus saying, well, you don't have to worry about empty words. It's not about how many words you say. And, and even the example prayers that we see in scripture are short and pithy. And what counts as prayer? Or is my, when I think, what's the difference in thinking and praying? If I can pray silently and if, if God is everywhere, externally and internally, what, what, is, what distinguishes thinking from praying if I'm thinking thoughts that, of God's intervention? And, and what does it mean when Paul says pray continuously? And, and so I, how do all of these things fit together? Well, at the very least, we must understand that prayer is important because we see it often in the life of Jesus. That as Jesus came, the one that was the God-man, the one that walks on water, the one that had the uh, um, omniscient ability of of God alone, that that he came and and he felt it necessary to pray. And and we see this frequently in Jesus' life, and, and the scriptures are teaching us something by that. And so if Jesus, the God-man, if he saw it to be necessary to pray, then then we too, obviously, it's important for us, even, even more so. This morning, that's what we're going to see Jesus talk, teaching us about. Over the last couple of weeks, we kind of did this, uh, we kind of heard as Jesus talked about ostentatious faith, ostentatious religion, this, this religion that is, is put on for display, it's, it's putting our righteousness on display so that other people would be impressed about how great we are, so that other people would be impressed by how godly we are. And so we looked at it in, in giving to the needy and in praying and in fasting, but what's interesting is it's kind of right in the middle of that Jesus takes an aside. You know, like sometimes when, when I'm preaching, I'll take an aside and I'll say, look, just as an aside, let's talk about this for a second, right? Jesus does this here. And we can kind of see that because if you were to take verses 7 through 15 and you were to cut them from the text, it would almost flow more naturally. The, the flow of thought would continue. But, but Jesus, having talked about ostentatious faith, takes an aside before he gets to ostentatious fasting. 
And so this week, what I want us to do is I want us to zero in on Jesus' teaching here. What is Jesus trying to teach us? What, is, what did he feel was so important that during the midst of this most important sermon, he, he takes an aside, he digresses for just a second to give us teaching. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 7. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Beginning in verse 7, it says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now what Jesus says here, beginning in verse 7, is really remarkable. Beginning in verse 7, what Jesus is essentially saying is, Jesus is essentially saying, don't pray like a pagan. This is what he says. He says, don't pray this way. This is how the Gentiles pray. This is how those godless barbarians pray. Has it ever occurred to you that it's not just Christians that pray? That it's not just Christians that at least have a claim to prayer? That we essentially said, as we said last week, that virtually every world religion throughout the history of the world has claimed prayer in some form. And so we see that Gentiles prayed. We know that Muslims pray. We know that Buddhists pray. We know that modern Orthodox Jews pray. We know that there's prayer among these other religions. And so the question for me has always been, and still is as we come to the text this morning, what is distinctive about Christian prayer? What is it about Christian prayer that, that sets us apart? How is it that our prayer is different? Because we know that we don't want to pray like them because their prayers are powerless. And Jesus is getting to that. He's saying, as my disciples, you cannot pray like a barbarian. As my disciples, you should not pray like a pagan. As my disciples, your prayer should be distinctive. As my disciples, your prayer should be marked. It should be set apart from them. So how does a, how does a pagan pray? I think Jesus gives us some insight into that. I think it's kind of helpful for us to think about how a pagan prays so that we can make sure that we are not praying that way. I think the first thing that we see, first way that pagans typically pray, is pagans pray mindlessly. Notice what Jesus says. How does he say that they pray? He says uh, in verse 7, do not heap up empty word phrases as the Gentiles do, or as the pagans do, as these false worshipers do. Do not heap up empty phrases. Most Bible translations there actually translate uh, heap up empty phrases as don't babble. There shouldn't be babble, and, and I think babble is probably a, a clearer understanding of what this is talking about because the word that's used there that's translated from the original language is actually not really even a word. It's more of a sound. It's kind of like blah, 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 right, you know, or, you know, it's kind of, they call it onomatopoeia, you know, like, it's brr, right, like, it's not really a word, it's more of a sound, and that's really what Jesus did there. He kind of said, don't do blah, 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 like, you know, like all the Gentiles do. 
Don't pray, in other words, don't pray mindlessly. Don't pray things that really aren't even words, where you're, you're just so checked out, you're not even really tuned into what you're saying. You're just kind of doing it because you have to, or doing it because you want something, or doing it because you're supposed to. So don't, don't, don't pray that way. How often are your prayers mindless? How often do you just repeat words? How, how often do you just kind of mumble them, not really even certain of what you said? I think perhaps the most guilty um, party of this in all of, us, in all of our lives would probably be when we ask blessings over meals, wouldn't it? How fast do we get through them? Do we even acknowledge what we're saying anymore? Do we even process what's happening, that, that we, in fact, are approaching the throne of God? Jesus said this is how pagans pray. Pagans pray mindlessly. Pagans pray in a way just to get through it. Pagans play in a, pray in a way that it's just all babble. But not only do pagans pray mindlessly, they also pray godlessly. If they're a pagan, they must necessity pray godlessly. And we can see this in their lives and what Jesus is talking about. He says, um, at the end of verse 7, he says, They think that they will be heard for their many words. Now let me just ask you, what kind of God requires that? What kind of God requires you to impress him with your eloquence? What kind of God requires you to arouse his attention by the things that you do and the things that you say? What kind of God demands from you this repetitive prayer so that in some way he will respond to you? For one thing, it's, there's really only two solutions here. The first is either your God is so small that he already doesn't know what's going on in your life and he needs you to tell, them, tell, tell him. Or your God is so unloving that he doesn't really care what's going on in your life anyway. And so you have to just hope that he will feel bad for you in some way and take mercy through your repetitive prayers. But when we pray like that, when, when pagans pray this way, they aren't praying a, a prayer to a God. They're praying a prayer out of superstition. They're praying, doing the right things, hoping that by saying right words, hoping by, hoping by, by doing excitable things, uh, hand gestures or some other uh, prayer ritual, getting on a rug or going to a wall or, or whatever that looks like, their hope is, is that by, by doing it that way, by, by, uh, by approaching God and impressing him with their ritual, that in some way they will, they will get what they want. In other words, their attempt is to have this superstitious approach to prayer that manipulates their God in some way or, or ultimately gets them what they want. It's no different than the baseball player that has to go through the same routine with his batting gloves. You ever watch the baseball players do that? It just drives you nuts, right? Every time they step out of the batter's box, they go all the way back through the whole thing. Why? Superstition. Nobody's more superstitious than perhaps false religions and baseball players, right? But that's what we see in their lives. Is that their prayer is more superstition than it is God-centered. What about you? When you pray... Do you feel like you need to say certain words in a certain way so that you can be heard? Do you feel like you need to, you need to uh, pray them in a certain posture to be heard? Do you feel like you need to go a certain length to be heard? All of these are superstitions in our lives. All of these are things that Jesus has come to defeat in the cross. All of these are the law that would require things like that. And so we know that Pagan prayers are mindless, and pagan prayers are godless, and if they are mindless, and if they are godless, they must, by default, be powerless. 
Because they are not praying to a God that can do something, because they are not praying to anyone that can answer them, that can respond to them, their, God, their prayers are, by default, absolutely powerless. See, I believe that what Jesus is doing in verses 7 and 8 is he is drawing our attention to an Old Testament story that would have been very familiar, particularly with Matthew's audience. If you go back to 1 Kings 18, we preached this not that long ago, and you think about the, uh, the story of Elijah, right? And so what happens in 1 Kings 18 is you have all of these false prophets that have infiltrated into Israel. They begin to, to worship the false, the false gods, and particularly the false god Baal. And so there are 450 false prophets of Baal, and, and Elijah comes, the one sole prophet of God, and he confronts them and says, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to decide right here, right now, which God is true. We're going to decide right here, right now, which God is going to reign. Which God is the one true God. And so what they do is they, they both build altars. And the false prophets of Baal for hours upon hours upon hours cry out to their God. Shouting louder and louder and louder with every prayer. But they give nothing but silence. There's no answer to their prayer. There's no response to their prayer. Their God is apparently unmoved. And so they begin to dance, and they begin to, to cut themselves. And they begin to, to babble louder, and they begin to, to cry out and to tear their clothes. But heaven is still silent. And then Elijah, the one that James, who gets most, most of his material from the Sermon on the Mount, says is our example in prayer. And Elijah, how does he pray? He prays to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel in what amounts to two sentences in the Bible. And as he finishes his prayer, a pillar of fire falls from the heaven and consumes the altar. His God did not have to be aroused. His God did not have to be beckoned. His God did not have to be convinced to care. His God was hanging on his every word, anxious to move in his life and for his people. And what Jesus is teaching us here is as his disciples, we should pray like Elijah, not like the false prophets. We should pray like men and women that are convinced that their God is caring, convinced that their God is sovereign, and are beckoning his throne. Not raw superstition, not mindless repetition, but faith. And so he says that the way that we should address our prayers is to whom? To our Father in heaven. To our Father in heaven. As Jesus is giving us this model prayer. Now, let me just give a couple of disclaimers about the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, I believe, is one of the most abused things in the Christian world, especially in the Southern culture. When I played football in high school, and, and I know it was like this, us all trying to be godly, but here's what we did every week. Our Father, who art in heaven. Right, right before we went out of the tunnel and into the game, right? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And we get... Power and glory forever and ever. Amen, yeah, right? And we're just going after it. Like, this is this, this build-up moment. Like, it had nothing to do with Jesus. It was all about us getting amped up, you know, right? Well, what Jesus is teaching us here is not that we should say these words every time. What Jesus is teaching us here is that this is, what our, this is the form that our prayer should take. This is, this is how our prayer should look. Not that they should be just like this every day, but they should, they should take this shape. They should take this form. And he says, first, who are we to address them to? We are to address them to our Father in heaven. Now, this goes back to what we talked about last week. If you'll remember what we talked about last week, what we said was so remarkable about prayer. What we said was so remarkable about our Father is that, one, our Father does not have to be convinced to care. 
Our Father, this is why he's using the language Father, our Father already loves us. Our Father already has affection for us. Our Father already wants to provide for us. And on the other side, we don't have to worry that our God is capable. This is why he doesn't just say he's our Father. He's our Father in heaven. He's our Father reigning from the throne. He's our Father ruling over the cosmos. So not only is our God caring, but our God is capable. Our our God wants to answer our prayers, and our God is able to answer our prayers. And so Jesus, even in the way we address our prayers, is bringing these two realities to be true in our lives. And so he says that we should pray to our Father in heaven. Now this is not insignificant. This is not insignificant, but it's also, we shouldn't be confused by this. We shouldn't be confused to believe that just because we were to address our prayers to our God in heaven, that, or to our Father in heaven, that it is only the Father that, uh, the only, only the Father that represents the Godhead in prayer. In fact, I believe that we see the Trinity as clearly in prayer as perhaps we do in any other part of the Christian life outside of salvation and baptism. That the other parts of the Godhead, the Son and the Spirit, are not dormant. They're not absent when we pray. No, we we pray to the Father, and this makes sense. We pray to the Father because it is the Father that that decrees the will. It is the the Father that that reigns with providence. It is the Father that the Bible tells us in James 1 is the, the giver of all good gifts. But we pray to the Father through the Son. We pray to the Father through the Son, that the way that we pray is to him to the father to the the one that that decrees providence to the one that that gives good gifts but we get to him through the son that ephesians 2 reminds us that we get to the father through the access given to us by the son that none of us should have the ability none of us should have the position of being able to call him father we should call him distant god we should call him fearsome lord but we should not call him father but that has been given to us through christ This is why traditionally in the church's history, the way that we pray is we typically end our prayers how? In the name of Jesus we pray, right? I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Now you realize we don't do that because of some superstitious reason that if we forget in Jesus' name we pray that somehow God just refuses to hear us. Or, on the other hand, if as long as we say in Jesus' name I pray, then um, somehow I'm going to get everything that I just asked for. I'm going to get a yes vote on all things. I'm just going to get a rubber stamp from God in some way. That's not why we pray in Jesus' name. When we add in Jesus' name at the end of our prayer, what we're merely doing is we're merely stating a reality that's already in place. See, in the cross, what happens for us is when we, we believe, when we, place, we repent of our sin and place faith in Christ, we become one with Christ. We become one with him. We become unified with him. So now we can stand before the Father and not be vaporized by his holiness because we now have the holiness of Christ, the righteousness of Jesus. And so our access to the throne of heaven goes through the Son. So we pray through the Son to the Father by the Holy Spirit. If it's, the, if it's the Son that gives us the access, it's the Spirit that gives us the words. It's the Spirit that gives us the prompting of when to do it and when to say it. This should, make, this should encourage you. I, I, talk, I counseled with a brother some time ago who was going through just an unimaginable circumstance in his life. Literally just like the oxygen had been sucked out of his lungs. And he broke down and he was weeping. And he said, Cody... I just don't think I'm praying right. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to say it. And I don't think God is hearing me because I just don't think I'm praying right. 
Here's the good news, brothers and sisters, is we don't pray by our power anyway. We don't pray with our words anyway. Romans 8 teaches us what? That when we don't know what to say, that we have no words, when we're just groaning, that the Holy Spirit takes those groanings and he brings them before the throne of the Father and he groans on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. That when we pray what we believe are the wrong things, that the Holy Spirit is, is interceding on our behalf before the Father, through the Son, correcting those prayers before the Father. That we have this, this paraclete, we have this, this mediator appealing to the throne of God on our behalf right now in heaven, in all of eternity, right now, brothers and sisters, the Spirit is praying for you. He's praying for you. You've got needs that you can't even, you can't even articulate. And he's bringing them before the Father. You've got struggles that your closest friend, maybe even your husband or wife, have no idea about. And he's bringing them before the Father. You've got sin. You've got, you've got, you've got questions. You've got doubt. All of them. The Spirit bringing them through the Son to the Father on your behalf. And I think there's an illusion, a veiled illusion to the, to the Trinity here in the Lord's Prayer. When we look at the second half of the Lord's Prayer, it says what? It says, give us this, our daily bread. An allusion to the Father, God the Father, the one that gives good gifts, the one that, that, that gives creation, that provides food and sustenance for us, the one that, that is always providentially providing for us. Forgive us our debts. Through the atoning work of Jesus is this possible, and only through the Son is this possible. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. It is the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that allows us to have any chance of living godly lives, any chance of living holy lives on our earth. And so through when we pray, we should understand this, this Trinitarian transaction that's taking place in that moment as we go to the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit. And so he says that we should address this to our Father in heaven. And then he says, hallowed be your name, right? And he goes through what is essentially six petitions. We see six petitions in the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, and lead us not into temptation. And I think there's two different divisions, two different ways that we should, we should view these six petitions. The, I think the first way that we should view these six petitions is we should see the, the first as being the greatest among them. That the first petition, all of the other petitions are feeding into it. All of the, uh, the giving us our daily bread, his will being done, uh, leading us not. All of, all of these other petitions are feeding into the first one, hallowed be your name. Here's what Jesus is saying when he says that. When he says, hallowed be your name, he's merely stating a reality of what's taking place. He's saying, God, be glorified among your creation. God, be glorified in me. Let your name be increasingly known as, as holy among the people, among the nations. May there be people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue. May they all stand up and acknowledge that your name is hallowed, that your name is to be adored, that your name is to be revered among all of the other creation. And what does he say? And use me to accomplish it. Use me to accomplish it. Give me my daily bread, Father, so that your name may be hallowed through me. Forgive me my debts, Father, not because I'm deserving, not because there's anything good or redeemable in me, but give me, forgive me my trespasses so that I might go forth and make sure and help your name be hallowed through the universe. Let me live a life of holiness. Help me avoid temptation. Help me live a godly life so that your name might be hallowed. 
everything in the cosmos, everything in the universe, everything in you, everything in your family, everything in your life, all of them are for the express purpose of hallowing the name of God. How different is that from the way we start our prayers? How different is that? When we pray, we pray and we say, God, I want, I want, I want. God, expand my influence. God, expand my power. God, expand my prosperity. God, give me more. How does Jesus pray? Jesus prays, just give me what I need so that I can hallow your name. Provide for me so that I can hallow your name. Provide for me so that your kingdom can be built. Provide for me so that the gospel can go forward. Provide for me. Give to me only what I need to glorify and to exalt you. It's a completely different approach to prayer, isn't it? Which I think brings us to the second division that we should see in our text. And what I think is probably the most prominent one. I think the second division that we should see is not just one and five, but three and three. That we should see the, and if you think about this, you'll see how naturally this is. You have the first three that all pertain to what? The greatness of God, right? The glory of God. Hallowed be your name. Your, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? So you have these, these first three that are, over, and then what are the second three all pertain to? The neediness of man, right? So you have, you have the first three, the first half of the Lord's Prayer, the first half of the model prayer is all, uh, all uh, aimed at the glory of God, all aimed at the greatness of God. And then you have the, the second half, which is all, which is all remembering and, and bringing in light of that the, the needs of man, the neediness of, of me as a person, as an individual, the neediness of us as, as his children, as his church. Now when we pray, we usually start where? We usually start with our neediness, don't we? We start with our wants, don't we? We go and we, we pray for those mundane parts of life. Oh God, I need a paycheck. Oh God, I need a job. Oh God, my children are rebelling. Oh God, I, I need a new home. Oh God, how, how am I ever going to have enough? What if something happens to me? Oh God, I'm sick. Help me. Now, our God is our Father, and we should feel every, every bit of the privilege, and we are able to do that. But it shouldn't just be that. And I think what Jesus is showing us is that it shouldn't even start with that. You see, what happens in our lives so often is we become so consumed in our needs, so consumed with the mundane aspects of life, that we begin to miss the greatness and the glory of God. We begin to, to miss God's sovereign providence over everything. We begin to, to miss seeing how his, his fingerprints are, are all over our lives and all over everything else that we have. And so we begin being so wrapped up in what we need, so wrapped up in what we want, that in some ways we, we shrink God down because we no longer ponder his greatness. We no longer ponder his sovereignty because our hearts are racing. If we're honest, the things that we find in the second half of the Lord's Prayer are those things which, which cause our hearts to race, aren't they? Will I have enough money? Will I have enough bread? Do I have enough insurance? What about my failures? I fail all the time. I'm, I'm such a loser. I'm always blowing it. I'm always messing up. I never do the things that I want to do, and I always seem to do the things that I don't want to do. I'm, I'm never doing the right things. I'm always doing the wrong things. And our hearts are racing with these things. And if we're honest, we're tired. 
We're tired. We're exhausted. We're exhausted from praying these, these prayers over and over and over as we just continue to, to spiral more and more into the depths of our neediness. So we pray and we pray and we pray and it just seems like we leave just as tired as when we got there. And it becomes duty and it becomes a job and we withdraw from it altogether because we don't believe it's effective. I think that's why Jesus starts his prayer the way he does. I think why the reason that Jesus starts with, with the hallowing of God's name, the reason that Jesus starts with the coming of God's kingdom, the reason that Jesus begins with, with the, the, the going forth of, of, of God's will in our lives on, on earth as it is in heaven, the reason that God goes there is he's, he's teaching us something. That what's distinctive about Christian prayer, what sets Christian prayer ab above all of these other faiths, it's not just the fact that we have this, this Trinitarian access, it's also that we pray in a way that begins with worship, not wants. That we pray in a way that begins with the greatness of our God, not with the depths of our neediness. So we go to our God acknowledging that our God is in control of everything. Acknowledging that our God is reigning over everything, that our God is ruling over everything, and that nothing can thwart his will. Nothing can keep his kingdom from coming. Nothing can keep his name from being hallowed, from being hallowed through his children, from being hallowed through his creation. Nothing can stop it. And so we get and we, and we ponder God's glory, and we ponder God's grace. See, what I believe is, what I believe Jesus is teaching us, is that for the Christian life, for those of us who really are secure in Christ, we view our needs from the perspective of God's greatness. We, we, that God's greatness, in other words, is a window through which we are to view our needs. Because it puts them in proper perspective. That rather than, than seeing how overwhelmed we are, rather than, than seeing how filled with despair our family seems to be, or filled with despair our world seems to be, if we will step back and for just a moment ponder God's greatness and, and ponder God's sovereignty and ponder God's creation and God's providence, what happens? It calibrates you, doesn't it? It calibrates you. Nothing resets the soul. Nothing resets the human heart like pondering the greatness of God. Because suddenly, I can go and I can say, oh God, I've got cancer. And as empty as it feels for me, I know. I know you're still on the throne. And I know that you're still in control. And even if my suffering doesn't end in this life, it's going to end in a hurry. Oh God, I've lost a child. How can I deal with the grief? How can I overcome it? Oh God, but I remember that in Christ, even though my heart grieves, I don't grieve like those without hope. Oh God, even though I grieve, I grieve as one knowing that for those in Christ, death has no sting. And all of this is going to dissipate like vapor. And I'm going to have a greater hope. Oh God, where's my next check coming from? What about my job, Lord? Oh, but God, I remember I remember how you, how you clothe the lilies, how you provide for the birds, and how much more you love me than them. Oh God, you are great. Oh God, you are glorious. And I think that answers our question from earlier. Why would we pray to a God that already knows our needs? 
Why would we pray to a God that already knows our needs? Jesus says this in verse 8, doesn't he? Why do you pray to a God that already knows your needs? Because it calibrates your heart. It resets it for you. It's a reminder to you that God is great and God is glorious. But if your prayers are not beginning with worship, if your prayers are not beginning with an astounding, uh, an astounding pondering of the, the glory and greatness of God, then you're just going to continue spiraling as you focus on yourself more and more and more. No, brothers and sisters, take a deep breath, step back, and ponder the splendor of our King. And you know a way to keep this fresh I think this is another reason why reading God's word is so helpful for you. Begin praying by praying through a passage of scripture that talks about God's greatness. Begin praying by, through, through a psalm in which, which God's greatness is being proclaimed. Begin praying by, by reading Genesis and remembering that God created all of that stuff. Begin praying by going to Isaiah 40 and remembering that, that God's hands measure the sky. That he can hold the, the water in his palm of the oceans. Set your heart, ponder God's greatness, and feel how it calibrates your soul. Begin, uh, begin realizing how, how, it, how it resets you, how it shrinks down your problems. You see, when we start with our neediness, we have a tendency to shrink down God and believe that he's absent. But when we start with God's greatness, and we view it through that window, it begins to shrink down our neediness. Understanding that nothing is beyond him. You see, all of the power, all of the divine healing that we're talking about, all of this, this awe-inspiring power that we find in prayer finds its strength in the cross. It finds its strength in the cross. We must remember that our faith in prayer will never exceed our confidence in the cross. But brothers and sisters, we can be confident in the cross. It is the cross that gives us access to the Father in the beginning. It is the cross that makes us children that can appeal to his throne as though it's our Father's chair. It is the cross that reminds us that if God can take care of our greatest need, being our death in sin, then he can certainly provide for us bread in the morning. It's the cross that reminds us that regardless of the level of our sin, he has delivered us. He has paid our debt. It is the cross that reminds us that we can be holy because he is holy and he has made us holy and he has indwelled us with holiness so that we can move forward in God's name and his name be hallowed. It is the cross in which we can, we can ponder and we can look and we can rest when we are weary. And so as Christians, we pray and we pray and we pray because we realize that the cross teaches us that we can never outpray God's provision of grace for us. We can never exceed. Our needs cannot exhaust him. So we pray. This morning, as we end, what I want us to do is I want us to read the Lord's Prayer together. I want us to not just read the Lord's Prayer together, but I want us to pray the Lord's Prayer. Not in this abusive withdrawn, superstitious way. But I want you to, to really process the words. I want you to, and, and guys, if you could go ahead and put that on the screen, that would be great. I want us to pray from the same version so we're saying the same words together. But allow it to, to, to calibrate your heart for a second. Uh, begin praying this way and, and, and allowing it to, to reset your soul. To ponder God's greatness way before you ever get to your neediness.
So would you stand with me this morning as we pray? Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us of our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Brothers and sisters, our God is our Father. And he is our Father that reigns in heaven, that invites you to come to him. This morning, would you come to him? This morning, as you've been so wrapped up in your neediness, you've been so overwhelmed by your struggles, perhaps you would come to the altar and repent and begin with worship. Begin with worship. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are trustworthy. You are reliable. You never doubt, you never betray us. You never forsake us. You never turn away from us. And yet you reign on heaven, over heaven. You reign over the earth. You are your kingdom, it is coming. Your will, it is being done. Nothing can stop your will. Lord, let us rest in that today. Let us rest in that today. God, I pray for those that are grieving loss, that they could rest in that today. I pray that those that are struggling with a decision to make, that they could rest in that today. I pray for those that have seen prayer as a great mystery, that God, today you would reset their hearts and, and reinvigorate their prayer lives. God, today, might you be glorified in us. Might your name be hallowed in our church. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to come and talk about membership, we would invite you to come and talk with one of our pastors. If you just need someone to pray with you, our pastors would love to pray with you, pray with your family, or to counsel with you. If you would like just to come and pray, come and pray. If you want to stand and sing, sing. But respond to God's word this morning.